0: You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app, and Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number four of Privacy Files. I'm Rich.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: In our last episode, Sarah and I presented you with some easy ways to better protect your privacy without being extreme. Because of course, this podcast is about making privacy approachable for everyone. Today we're going to explore how our personal behaviors have or have not changed in a world that increasingly tracks more of our digital movements. And to enhance our discussion, we're shaking things up a bit by welcoming an in-studio guest, someone who in the future will likely become known as Mr. Metaverse.
2: Brian, welcome. Thank you, Rich. Happy to be here. I'm a user experience designer uh, by trade, and I've made it my mission to uh, make privacy products as approachable and easy to use as possible so people can protect their privacy while still getting the maximum amount out of internet products like the metaverse. And I mentioned too, kind of
0: be seeing more of you down the road in this metaverse space. What kind of interest do you have regarding that? I mean, how it relates to privacy?
2: My perspective on it is it is the next evolution of the internet. I don't want anybody to shy away from the awesome experiences of Going into a virtual world and being able to, I don't know, shoot fireballs out of your hands or meet a plethora of other people, get different experiences just because they're scared of the hackers and people that want to abuse their personal data. And with enough equipment and tools to protect their privacy, you should be able to do and experience whatever you want.
0: Yeah. And I think the theme is, is the metaverse sounds cool, but again, there's still privacy issues that, that come along with that. Just like the internet is in general.
2: Yeah. And it's totally, it has to be on you uh, to be responsible with your own data. But if you are taking those steps, you can get the full experience out of anything. You know, Sarah, it's often said to know where you're
0: going, you must know where you've been. And for me, I think the first time here on Privacy Files, we're really kind of following that mold of opening a case file and really getting into the setting, the background, why we're here and just not just talking about like we did in the last episode, which was, you know, here's some easy solutions that you can apply to not be extreme necessarily, but to just take your privacy up a notch or two. And now we're going to talk about kind of where we are now, how we got here and where we're going And some of those subtle changes that not everybody notices, right? Sometimes the changes that are taking place in in our environment are very subtle, they're incremental, and then some of them are happening very quickly. So we're going to discuss that evolution of privacy. And then I think another kind of overarching theme here is there's this undercurrent, I guess, this tug of war going on between the individual, you, me, Brian, and people who are in positions of authority, whether it's those in government or those who just essentially have privileged access at a company who can look at your data. We've seen the stories. They happen pretty much weekly. If somebody just used that privilege to access your information, whether they did anything with it or not, it's still not right. And people need to know that just because you have nothing to hide doesn't necessarily mean you should be trusting everybody and what they're doing with your data. So I think that's kind of a, a little bit of a theme that we're gonna be seeing here in this episode. And of course, you know, we, we're gonna develop a better appreciation of the problem, what we can learn from the past, and then how to tackle issues moving forward.
1: Yeah, so, all right, so I was never a history buff. Growing up, and it was sort of my absolute weakest subject in school, but it's probably why I now love to dig in and learn things more in depth. So when we presented the idea of discussing this topic of how we changed in a world that tracks us, where we're going, it got me asking as well, well, where have we been on the topic of privacy historically? And to sort of piggyback off that, will we repeat history or are we paving new ways of furthering our privacy? So I discussed in one of our first episodes an article I read called The Birth and Death of Privacy, 3,000 Years of History. It was basically the first article I popped open while digging into the history of privacy and some factors I hadn't considered were listed, which I'll touch on in a second. But I also wanted to list some other important key privacy points in time that have affected where we are today with privacy now. Obviously, this isn't a complete list of laws and regulations because it was pretty extensive, but I'm just going to skim over some highlights I thought were interesting just to sort of figure out where have we been in history so we can kind of figure out where are we where are we heading. So the timeline I read through actually starts all the way back in 1215 A.D. I, I'm taking it way back here, but don't worry, I'm going to jump ahead. I just thought it was interesting seeing where privacy was evolving even so long ago. So back then, silent reading came about because the church mandated confessions for the masses. So quiet study was an elite luxury for centuries, but it became more popular with non-elites about 500 years later when books were cheap enough for individual ownership. Then in the 1500s, most homes didn't have walls separating rooms until the development of the chimney, which needed support beams. So rooms became closed off by design. Then jumping to the 1700s, we have solo beds that came into play because beds used to be really expensive. So most homes only had a single large bed that was shared among family and even guests. So this obviously wasn't proving to be a long-term solution. Hopping forward again, we have the term the right to privacy or the right to be let alone, which was a law review article published in 1890 Harvard Law Review. It's considered the first publication in the U.S. to argue for a right to privacy, But it was actually during this Gilded Age that privacy was officially acknowledged as a political right. And what I found really interesting was that the right to privacy was being justified on the grounds for why it's so popular today, which is technology's encroachment on personal information. And then in the 1900s, knowledge and info about privacy really started coming about because information about citizens was often so public, including the first American census, which was completely open. In 1914, the FTC came about, which if you feel like you hear that name often, it's because actually the FTC has been the leading federal agency that most often is involved with privacy issues, regulations, and enforcement. Um, A couple more events that the U.S. has to get us jumping to where we are today, the U.N.'s Declaration of Human Rights in 48, which says no one will be subjected to interference with their privacy and has the right to protection of the law against those interferences or attacks. You have the Family Educational Rights Act, or FERPA, in 74 that safeguards the privacy of students' education records. You have the Privacy Act of 74, which is a federal law over federal agencies' collection, maintenance, and use of your personally identifiable information. The Common Rule on Human Subject Research Privacy, HIPAA was introduced in 96. Children's Online Protection Privacy Act came out in 98. So now we sort of finally hit the millennia what have things looked like in the past 22 23 years now that it's a new year we have the state data breach notification laws that came into play in 2003 i believe it was and most recently in 2020 there's the California Consumer Privacy Act CCPA which it regulates how businesses handle the personal information of residents of California and i was reading that virginia followed suit in california or colorado sorry this year is actually falling suit doing the same thing. So to me, we've had what looks like so much progress towards being more private and protected. You know, I have my own bedroom and my own bed, and you know, and then there's actual federal laws to help protect our personal information. So, does this mean we're continuing to move in that direction, or is it still some uphill battle that no amount of law can handle? I'll wrap up our little history lesson here with is a final quote from one of the articles. It says, rather than waging a losing battle against technological intrusions, we should put more effort towards recognizing the inherent value of our data. Doing so would allow us to shift our focus towards understanding and exercising our rights and options and making informed decisions when it comes to how our data is being used. Acting now can help ensure that in the future, we will continue to have a space where we can be ourselves and be let alone. So that sort of sounds like our quote with my pseudo living your life online without leaving your life online.
0: And speaking of MySudo, it's a perfect time for this message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? MySudo is the world's only all-in-one app that gives you back control of your privacy. By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using dating apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each pseudo also includes a private web browser with ad and tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. To learn more, visit mysudo.com. That's mysudo.com. Stay private. So, Brian, as I was listening to Sarah kind of tell that story about history, I, I couldn't help but think about my dad. He was born in 1931 and he grew up on a farm in northwestern Minnesota. And he used to always tell me the stories about just living life as a kid, really during the Great Depression still. And it was just a one room, basically simple home. And they had a loft where I think that's where he slept, and there was no privacy. I mean, you were out in the open, you had an outhouse. <laughs> I mean you, you, you really had no expectation of privacy, and that's just kind of how people live. Now, for you as a I guess a younger millennial, you've grown up basically in a world without privacy because you've had technology, you've been sharing your information online. And kind of to Sarah's point, are we coming full circle and now we're returning to this era where people don't experience privacy?
2: Listening to the the story of privacy over time, just there's so many parallels you can bring to the creation of internet. And at least my experience as someone that has grown up through the birth of the internet and really how it takes off. I mean, I started using an internet that was totally on a family computer kind of dial up, but you were able to play, you know, like RuneScape as the first like old video games. And that was my true first experience meeting random people online through a video game, having conversations. And there was a big, you know, not as much focus on I should be protecting myself, right? Because I'm just a kid exploring a a video game, but I don't really connect the fact that I was talking to random strangers and building relationships online, sharing stuff about myself with people that I've never met. And as you grow up, I think you start to realize that, oh, there is risk involved in this. And as more about the Internet was discovered, you start to naturally want to be more private online. And as you grow up, you're like, okay, maybe... I shouldn't be saying all this stuff or giving out emails to random sites that I've, you know, just saw on Google or anything like that. Because as I got more into the internet and specifically social media in high school, signing up for a Facebook account and starting to really use it as a communications tool, you start to realize that your personal information is valuable and you know i wasn't paying for facebook so how were they you know how's that business model working uh they're taking my email they're using my phone number my personal data they're selling it and brokering it. and that's kind of a big realization to have as a high schooler that oh you need to be responsible with this but that what high schooler is going to really be concerned about data brokering when their friends are talking online without them and their social status is going to go down if they don't use social media. And so for many years, I was kind of cavalier with a lot of signing up for any site that anybody recommended and, and not really looking into details of that company, how they're going to be using my data. Are they going to be selling it to third party brokers? And so I feel like as you mature and actually more resources become available for you to learn about the risks involved in using the internet to communicate. Get personally responsible for stopping the leak of your own data, uh, using different emails, making sure all your passwords are different. Doing your research on these companies, and one of the best sites that I love to use, it's Terms and Conditions Didn't read it. It's a site that wonderful people have crowdfunded, Reading all the terms and services of these companies and putting in bullet points in plain English so you can actually understand, oh, my data is being sold to third party, even though that's on page 26, line three, section 13 of their terms and conditions. And it's really become a big part of my life and what kind of what brought me to being a UX designer and specifically a UX designer in the security space is a lot of the problems can be solved. It's just hard to get yourself to use a privacy product because you want it fast. The internet is fast right now. Like you don't want to take a second to think before you sign up. You want to be signed up and in there within seconds. And so a lot of people, if it's too hard to use the privacy products, you're not going to be able to protect yourself. So if we can start giving people easy to use, simple, fast, affordable privacy products, we can really bring back the power of protecting your personal data.
1: Oh, that's great. I think it's that conversation of value exchange and people, do they place a value on privacy? So do people really care about security? They do. Um, Some of the articles I was reading it said 80% of users say they do value their data privacy more than keeping social media platforms free to use. That sounds great, except 72% aren't actually willing to pay to protect their privacy. So it's like 80% value it and they say they value their privacy over a free app, but then only like 72% of them aren't actually willing to pay for it. It sounds like there's just this overwhelming cohort of Americans that say they have a desire for increased data privacy. But when it comes down to it, many aren't willing to actually pay to protect it. I wish everyone could just put a sticky note on their mirror or something that says if the product is free, you are the product. You know, that's something we always say. Anyways,
0: people have just gotten so used to everything online. being free. It's
1: quick. It's free. Yeah. Yeah. So there's several services out there even your phone carriers at times will offer additional paid premium services for extra protection or opting out of browser tracking, ad targeting. And some people just they aren't paying for it. It just seems they lean towards this. This article sort of just leans towards a future where most people will choose invasive tracking in exchange for you know more money, more entertainment, or what have you, things like that. But I think even though people may not always be willing to pay for privacy features, I think people are definitely more cautious nowadays and considering what they decide to post publicly, kind of like what Brian was saying, Um, they're having that internal value exchange debate and ask themselves, what are the benefits, if I agree? What are the risks? They're highly considering how much they trust the service they're using. So factors like their past experiences, reputation of the company, behind the technology, existing social norms, whether the technology is a game changer and how providing their personal data would impact their status. It's a mix of what do I want to put out there and how much do I trust this service? I think it's safe to say people won't buy from companies if they don't trust how their data is being used.
0: And speaking of trusting companies, this is a good time for our next message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly four and a half million dollars, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. And Pseudo Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. Built for developers by developers, from identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Pseudo Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit sudoplatform.com. at sudoplatform.com. So Sarah, we kind of been touching on this theme. Are we becoming more or less private? Where do you stand now?
1: So many articles support both sides, which is typically great to have views from all perspective. But I guess it's like, well, are we or aren't we? And where do I stand? Where should I even stand? I'm going to sort of just default into my two bullet points of, moving away and going towards privacy. So my first example is moving away from privacy. It was a Forbes article called Privacy is Dead and Most People Really Don't Care. It was pretty <laughs> blunt on the title, so I was like, let's hear it. So it questions that the, deep down in each of us, we know that we're s- signing away our privacy rights to use these platforms and devices, so why do we do it? It claims we just don't truly value privacy as much as we like to believe that we do. The article says humans are social animals, so we have a strong need to interact with other people and belong to something. Guess what social media does for us? It helps us stay connected. We'll actually be diving into the Netflix docudrama, The Social Dilemma, in an upcoming episode. But the former insiders of these companies explain and show how companies not only mine and sell your data, but also how they have created their systems to make you addicted to their platforms. They need you to keep returning so they can collect more and more data from you and monetize it. Many people who have watched The Social Dilemma are shocked by what they learn, but how many really swear off these platforms and actually delete their accounts, right? So people get more people get important value from these platforms and devices and accept the trade-offs for it. The last quote from this article from Forbes says it thinks that we're becoming less private. It says data security is still paramount, but the strong belief for data privacy is pretty much dead. So that was a pretty strong take on how this article feels we're moving away from privacy because people don't care. But so this second one, um, this article is called the era of anti-social social media. So this one's moving towards more privacy Um, this was an interesting take on how we're moving towards a more privacy focused society in terms of how it's generational we kind of have touched on that so it was I was actually really surprised with this article um, which means I'm either out of touch already or this article is off base but apparently there are findings that the younger generation Gen Z isn't actually driving the growth and popularity of social platforms Just a couple years ago, there was some research done that found social media usage and the amount of time millennial and Gen Z audiences spend on many social platforms is either flat or waning. I was honestly kind of surprised considering what I feel like I see day to day with kids and phones. And so this one was kind of hard for me to comprehend. Honestly, I just didn't expect that. But apparently they're saying instead of just accumulating these heaps of friends and followers, they really just want to be themselves and make close friends based on shared interests. So the author of this article used the term digital campfires for these social settings Gen Z and young millennials are searching out for now. Uh, these digital campfires offer a more intimate oasis of sorts where smaller groups of people are excited to gather around and sh- around shared interests. And they're doing this through private messaging, micro communities and shared experiences. And even Zuckerberg was quoted in 2019 that they're seeing private messaging and small groups are by far the fastest growing areas of online communication. So sort of an interesting take on it, right? I was pretty surprised, but maybe it's just what we think is cool is out, like skinny jeans and side parts for millennials are out. These younger kids just aren't into it. I don't know, but I'm still a little skeptical Just it seems the younger generation is all about what's trending on TikTok and being influencers and gaining, gaining notoriety with followers. But maybe I've been way off base. I have no idea. As a parent, it's nice to hear kids are moving off social media platforms. But I guess I also now have new worries about, well, where are they communicating now, if not on these larger platforms? Having Brian here with us, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, that article is very enlightening. I think from my personal perspective, you're seeing all of these new tech companies coming out. And a lot of the times in that generational gap, like Gen Zers don't want to use what their parents use. They don't want (laughs) to be using Facebook. And there's all these new options that some are focused on privacy, some aren't. But you have these smaller more intimate groups like Discord is a perfect example. I moved all my friend group from college from Facebook to Discord. We all mutually agreed that we don't want Zuckerberg, you know, <laughs> in on all of our conversations. And h- half of us said they're swearing off the of social media. So we needed a place where we can all message without having to have that on your phone.
1: Right. You have several Discord, Slack, even MySudo has group messaging. There's those are coming out.
2: Exactly. And you feel more protected, you feel more personal there. It's not necessarily a outlet for anybody to be involved in your conversation. It's you and your close friends developing your relationship online. And a lot of cases, these are friends that you've met online. Uh, me personally, I've met a lot of great friends through uh, gaming and online gaming. That's just kind of being placed in a lobby and building a relationship. And it allows you to continue those relationships in a secure way.
0: Yeah, I think where I stand, I feel that privacy and how much importance people place on it, it does have a generational component to it. And it just comes down to personal experience and your environment and the sign of the times, culture, what's happening around you. And I I always think about my dad. He was uh, came from a different generation, you know, born in 1931 still had the Great Depression going on. He was on a farm in northwestern Minnesota. It was this one room. He was part of what they call the silent generation. And I had this quote here from Time Magazine back in 1951. I think it was one of the first times that they ever used the term silent generation. And the quote is, "'The most startling fact about the younger generation is its silence. Today's younger generation is a still small flame It does not issue manifestos, make speeches, or carry posters. And that, it really did sum up my dad. He was a very private person. If you were one of the people in that close circle with him, he shared lots of information. He was very open, but he very much was a private individual. And I think that experience had a lot to do with, uh, you know, just being part of that, you know, Great Depression era, being on a farm, especially when you're on a farm you kind of have that separation. You know, you're not in a city where it's congested and people are basically living on top of you and they can peek over your fence. And you're living in apartments and you can hear neighbors. I know I can. And my apartment complex, the walls are thin. And so you just, it's almost a mindset. So when you're on a farm, you've got that physical separation and it kind of, I think it transfers over into the mindset of, yeah, I live a private life. My dad, you know, he spent time in the Air Force during the Korean War. He was actually a cryptologist. He had top secret clearance. And, you know, his later, I think it was his last year or two when he was in the Pentagon, he got to see kind of the inside of what's really going on versus what the public thinks and just how how information is controlled, in, in, at least in the context of government. That really changed him from that point on. As he saw, OK, here's all the here's all the issues that I could face as an adult working in the private sector and thinking about what do people in authority, whether it's government or a company, what do they do with that information? And so I always look back when I was a kid. My dad was a he was very strict about paying for most things with cash. Right. And and we used to laugh at him. I, I did my mom, my sister. And it's like, why? Why are you always paying in cash? What's the big deal? I don't want the government to know what they're you know what I'm doing. And I was like, well, why do you care? You don't have anything to hide. It's just none of their business. Right. He would always right. say that he had one credit card his entire life. And I think it was a gold American Express. And I think he got that card in the mid fifties. That's the only card he ever had. And he sparingly used it only in I guess the last few years of his life, did he actually use it at the gas pump, right? He liked to, he was one of those guys that liked to go into the bank, see the bank teller. He hated the ATMs. He had those machines. Cause again, he felt like there was something else going on with that information because he saw the early days of the internet and the Pentagon before really even the big mainframe computers, they were using these really basic simplistic machines to transfer information and code back and forth. And so he he knew in the wrong hands that information can be used in nefarious ways. So he was a very big proponent of using cash. He didn't like the idea of moving toward the digital age and what can be done with that information if everything goes cashless.
1: Well, I feel like people are kind of that way sometimes nowadays. You know, you get people that I myself, we've pulled out some cash. It's in a safe. You know, my dad's got some gold. You know, people talk about gold still. But I think especially with the last few years, even in, was it Canada, they peep shut people's banks down, you know, if they don't like what you're doing. So I think people are always a little bit wary and they're like, well, I, it's that aspect of control, right? Your dad wanted control over it. He didn't want somebody else having that. So
0: yeah, that's, it's true too, because as a kid growing up, I mean, even though probably the great depression wasn't something he remembered a lot of, cause he was probably five, six years old at the point when maybe he had some memory, his parents were certainly in their twenties. And so they passed on some of those values to him, which carried on into his adult life. And it's the same thing with my grandfather on my mom's side too. They were, they were hoarders. They, I remember the only time I ever met my grandfather on my mom's side, he showed me his massive battery
1: collection <laughs> <laughs> because he
0: was preparing for the next doomsday. And
1: which is what it, people are doing today. That's in our family. There's boxes of things showing up. But you're preparing for the unknown, and you know. right.
0: And they have you know rolls of coins. There's right. this big dis, this mistrust, distrust of of banks, and and again, like you said before, this control. I, mm-hmm. I I want as much as much control as possible over my own destiny instead of putting that in the hands of somebody else. And so that's definitely a common theme that's related to people who just still like to use cash, and I and I can definitely empathize with them. Uh, another uh, another example was uh, when it came to income verification. There were several times I saw my dad, who he had to tell like an apartment property management, uh, "Okay, here's how much I make." They would ask him those questions, and he would say, oh, "You get really excited. That's none of your business." Well, we have to, you know, put this down so we know how much you can afford in terms of monthly rent. And he was like, "I can pay. You know, what's the big deal?" And again, that was going back to my personal finances are my business. It's none of your business. If I can pay, I can pay. If I can't, you kick me out. You know Why right. do you need to know all this information? Uh, and then another scenario kind of related to that is when he moved to California, I think it was back in the late 80s, he was communicating with the IRS and there was some miscommunications uh, in the mail, whatever it was, and he called somebody at the IRS and the agent said, well, here's the address we have on file. And he said, well, that's not my address. And i never forget, he said the agent asked him, well, did you inform the government that you moved? He's like, I did. No, I had to inform the government <laughs> that I moved. So again, I, I. but he saw, he had a different experience in his life. And so part of it, definitely generational, like you were talking about, Brian. But the other side of it too is, it's also just your life experience. I mean, the things that you see, just like. You know, When you're a kid, how, you're, how you grow up and how you're raised by your parents and your school and your local community, that shapes who you become later in life and your views, your political views, how you raise your kids, how you live your life. So I, think that's, I think that's an important concept to wrap up is we're thinking about the context of how important privacy is to you as an individual. As we mentioned a couple episodes ago, how do you define privacy? It's, it's right. up to
1: you. Yep. It's generational and it's personal.
0: Yeah. Probably to wrap this up, I think the takeaway here is there's this, as I mentioned, this life experience that comes with sometimes that, you know, when you think about generation, a lot of it is just life experience, you know, within the generation, you have young, you have older, and there's distinctions between those two groups too, within that bigger cohort of the generation. So obviously the younger people, a little bit more idealistic, right, Brian? and the older people they they kind of start to figure out how the world works mm-hmm. and they become more pragmatic and that's back to the whole do you trust authority younger people probably more likely to older people start to see based on their personal experience and just reading about the world that's kind of the where where this all goes any any closing thoughts
2: it's healthy to be skeptical about this stuff but if you're armed and protected There's no reason why getting into social media at an older age or uh, experiencing something like the metaverse, the next wave of innovation, it's not going to stop for you. You can either fight it or be involved, but you got to be personally responsible to protect yourself while you do that. And these privacy products that we build at Anatomy Labs, as well as others out there, are going to allow you to safely have amazing experiences throughout the rest of your life, whether it's in real life or online.
0: Yeah. And I think Brian, you know, before we started recording, I was telling you the quick little story too, is although it's not directly related to data privacy, but it is related to again, how much trust do you put in authority? When my sister was in high school, they were, um, She's 17 years older than me, so there's a big age gap. And she she was in Dallas-Fort Worth in Arlington. And when she was coming home from school, I think she was a junior, senior, somewhere in that time frame. uh, There used to be an Arlington Police Department officer who used to follow her home. And one day... you know after telling my dad several times what was going on uh, my dad happened to be home early from work one day and this incident happened again and my dad saw it and he went outside and he confronted the officer and said well what are you doing here he said oh i'm just making sure your daughter is 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 safe on her journey home and he said of course you know if i ever see you here again i'm going to i'm going to talk to your department and he never showed up ever again and so that's again it's we've said it before in past episodes sarah's mentioned this you probably don't have anything to hide, but it's not really about that. It's who has control of your information and what can they do with that? They're, not everybody's virtuous. I think that's the takeaway. Not to scare you, but just to be pragmatic and cautious about your everyday life. So Sarah, Brian,
2: I feel pretty good about this one. What do you think? Any closing thoughts? Are we good?
1: No, I think we covered it really well. Brian, thanks so much for coming.
2: Happy to be here. It was a great conversation and look forward to more privacy files.
0: Yeah, well thank you for joining us. I really I really do appreciate it. It's great to have a new guest here in studio. Well, we've placed the privacy challenge in context so people can better visualize and appreciate their own risk profile. As we've mentioned before on the show, probably don't have anything to hide, but you shouldn't assume that everyone who handles your personal data has your best interest in mind either. That's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, we'll be reviewing one of the seminal documentaries on privacy featuring Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff, author of the monumental book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the book that exposed the dubious mechanisms of our digital economy, revealing how our personal and private experiences are being surreptitiously hijacked by Silicon Valley and used as the raw material for extremely profitable digital products. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.